I remember standing in that home and saying, if we can duplicate this feeling and we can really build a portfolio like this and we can deliver an experience like this to thousands and thousands of people, then we can build an important company. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today, I'm talking with the founder of Wander, John and this was a great conversation. We talk a lot about the short-term rental industry in general. We talk about kind of their take on it and why they have decided to take what is otherwise a fragmented industry of marketplaces, property managers, and asset managers, and vertically integrate. We talk about the REIT that they spun up and how they plan on owning hundreds of world-class properties the operating side of the business, how they are making operating more efficient, more cost-effective, and obviously a better solution for their client. And then we talk about what travel and hospitality will look like over the next five to 10 years, how things are changing, where we might see some of the biggest impacts, and why the experience should get better. So this is a great episode. Short-term rentals are continuing to grow, continuing to form into their own asset class, continuing to be something that capital markets want to invest in. And I think Wander's doing one of the best jobs. The first part of this story is awesome. John has been an entrepreneur for 13, since he was 13 years old. He's a Teal fellow. He's a Forbes 30 under 30. And so he's had a lot of unique experience that I enjoyed learning about. So thank you so much for continuing to listen and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between $15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partnerships for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. John, welcome to the show, my man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm jazzed to be here. I'm pumped. Been doing some research on everything you're doing and excited for today's conversation. I wanted to just kind of start it with your kind of career early on as an early founder and then leading into what you're doing today at Wander. I grew up in New York, just north of the city, small town called Katona. Like most kids, got into a bunch of trouble, had a bunch of fun running around, etc. Was raised by a single dad a lawyer. And yeah, I ended up becoming an internet kid pretty early. Started my first company when I was like 13, 14, this little game server company, which did pretty well, like low six figures and always meant that I was not focused on my homework, as (laughs) as you'd imagine. It was so it was so interesting, like thinking back to that time, because really, if it wasn't for my pop, right, like I wouldn't be on the journey that I am. I remember I ended up in like some legal dispute with this Fortune 500 company. And I had no idea what I was doing, right? And so I see seeing my dad and I'm like, hey, like, can you help me? And now all of a sudden this company thinks that I've secured counsel, right? Because he's a pretty successful lawyer. (laughs) Um, And so they add in like 13 more lawyers, right? And all of a sudden it's this huge back and forth. And 
I think from there on out, he was like, okay, like, you know, what is my son doing on the computer? You know, because he was always the dad that was like, you know, oh, you're into, you know, RC cars. I'm going to get you like all the tools you need so you can like build these things or, oh, like you're into computers. Let's like build a computer together. And, you know, when this, when this started happening, he was like, okay, like, you know, how much money are you making? Like, all right, you do owe a lot of taxes. Like, let's, (laughs) let's go to the city. You know, back then they had us print out all of these transactions, right? But obviously in the company I was running, they were all like little microtransactions. So I like walked into the the accountant's office with, you know, thousand pages of these little $1 transactions and the accounting fees were more than like what I made, but <laughs> it was a good lesson. Also a lesson that accountants and lawyers are very expensive. So <laughs> I think that's, that's something a lot of business owners learn. Yeah. So yeah, that was my, that was my childhood basically building these little companies and having a bunch of fun ended up doing high school online and that kind of gave me the freedom to to travel around I got to travel around the world with my pop so you know, spent a few months in in Korea and otherwise sort of that that kid in the boardroom out of high school I started a company called coder which basically moves the development environment where a software engineer writes code to an organization's cloud infrastructure so a very technical product and started that with my co-founders, Kyle and Amar. We moved to Austin, Texas to, to start that. Couldn't afford the rent in New York. So rented a rusty tin shack on the east side and somehow convinced engineers to join us, which is very impressive because we had garbage piled up front because we, we didn't have an actual dumpster or anything at that point. And so, you know, an engineer coming from IBM or Google to interview with the startup and seeing a bunch of garbage outside isn't exactly attractive, but somehow we recruited the first few people and got to work. And I got to learn a whole bunch, obviously raising your you know, seed round and series A and series B at such a young age was quite the experience. I went through a phase where I thought we had to sort of dress up so people didn't know how old we were. So we were those 18 year olds in Silicon Valley with button ups and slacks walking around to all these VC offices. And that company ended up being pretty successful. So we raised about $45 million from GGV, Founders Fund, Redpoint, Bessemer, et cetera, a bunch of big customers like Palantir, Goldman Sachs. My co-founder, Omar, still runs that company and Kyle's still there as well. And I stepped down early in 2021 after a five-year run. Somewhere in between, I became a Teal Fellow, 30 on 30, all that fun stuff. And, and then, yeah, I was like, all right, I'm 23. Like, what's what's next. And I'd rented this cabin out in Colorado to get away, explore the world. And that's where the idea for Wander came from and wouldn't let me sleep at night. And here we are now, almost two years later. Man, I love that. I'm going to unpack a couple things before we move forward. But you mentioned your dad a bunch. What about your dad is, has had such a, a big impact on you? Clearly, he's a believer in you. But if you if he's listening to this, like, it seems like your dad's a huge part of your journey. How would you describe him? I, I wouldn't be here <clears throat> without him, like point blank. And I, I, it's interesting. I think a lot of people talk about this idea of being self-made. And it's like getting to where you are takes the help of so many people, your team, your parents, your friends. And I can truly say that without him, I would be in a, a completely different spot. If you sort of look at his decisions, 
you know, a lot of a lot of parents, if when they were you know be put in in his shoes, wouldn't choose to say, okay, I'm going to raise my daughter and my son as a you know single dad, and I'm also going to you know keep working on my business. He's a he owns his law firm. Yeah, you know, I think as as young kids, you don't really realize a lot of the sacrifices that your parents make. But for me, I realized it pretty early. I remember being pretty young and he had picked us up from school. We had hung out and then time for bed. And I woke up around three, four in the morning, five in the morning, went downstairs and I found him still at his computer working. And I realized that what he would do is he would drop me and my sister off at school, go to work, pick us up, which he was always late, which was like something that I was like, come on, dad, like you got to be on time. But of course, in retrospect, right, you're, you're late because you're working, you're doing emails, you're fighting giants. And so when I realized that he would drop us off at school, pick us up, hang out with us, and then work all night and maybe get, you know, a few hours of sleep in between. I think that's where it really clicked for me that the sacrifices he was making and also the fact that I wanted to sort of work like dad, which, you know, from a timing perspective is really when I started not just playing these games, but trying to figure out the business behind it and how it all worked. And of course, I was sort of always a a curious kid, but I think that really started it. And if you if you think through really my like my whole life, you have this kid who starts a company really in in high school. So Coder was started while I was still in high school and we had three or four employees before before I graduated. The idea that he would be supportive of that, not going to college, which most of my family has gone to college, very, very privileged in that sense. So you have this this kid who's not going to go to college and you have for him he has five other brothers and sisters and an immigrant, you know, family. And the idea that it's like, hey, like, you know, my pop came from Scotland, like this like immigrant family and your kid's not going to go to college, like he's just going to skip that. There's a lot of pressure, but he was massively supportive. And when I told him, hey, I want to go and start this company and really take it seriously and get an office and move to Austin, he packed up his stuff and said, all right, left New York with me and and came down here and if that doesn't sort of earn you a massive award as a parent, I don't know what does. And he's been with me every step of the way. And legal is very, very useful. Free legal is very useful. <laughs> so we're, we're glad to have him. Well, cheers to your dad, man. I could just tell from you talking about him that he's a huge part of your life. And I share that with you. My dad was my biggest fan and I don't know where I'd be without, without that support. You, you kind of glossed over this, but I have not had anybody on in 270 episodes. It was a Teal fellow. Can you just describe that experience? Like what, what is it about? How did, did it, was it a positive impact on you? Like a little more on that? Absolutely. So for, for those who aren't familiar, the Teal Fellowship is a program that's put on by Peter Teal. And the idea is, is to basically support young people who aren't going to college. I think that what's really interesting, and obviously that comes with grants and network and all that sort of fun stuff, but what's really interesting is probably two dynamics. Number one is how small the classes are. So it's about 20 people every year. And the, uh, the acceptance rate is 
very, very small. They don't really publicly talk about the number of applicants, so I can't necessarily share, but it's a very small group of, of young entrepreneurs. And the other dynamic that's really interesting is its general purpose. I think a lot of people think about it in the sense of how does this accelerate your career? How does this move you forward? But from my angle, building a company, especially at a young age, is a pretty lonely endeavor. You don't have many friends. Everyone you work with is far older than you, especially at that age. And so this idea that there are 20 other kids across the entire world who are your age and excited and passionate and want to build and that this brings them together and you have this sort of shared experience of starting a company at a young age and building it and all that sort of cool stuff is probably the most powerful dynamic. And so now the program, I think, is about 10 years old. So there's about 200 alumni, including the founder of Ethereum, Dylan Field from Figma. The list sort of goes on and on. I think there was a study done that if the program was a, a, a venture studio, it would be one of the most successful venture firms and venture studios on the planet. So, so far, it's been been really successful. And I would say the real benefit and the thing that I'm so appreciative of is that truly, I would have very few friends if it wasn't for that program. And that's really invaluable, especially as a as a business owner and entrepreneur. Again, it's such a lonely journey that the idea that he took the time to identify this group of kids who were truly alone and build some infrastructure around it was is something that's really beautiful. So that's awesome. So you so you if if we say that you left with friends, if I were to say from a business perspective, fill in the blank. Prior to going to Thiel Fellowship, John was X. Post Thiel Fellowship, John was X. Yeah, it's interesting because when I got into the Thiel Fellowship, Coder had just raised its Series A and our Series Seed was led by Founders Fund. So Peter and, and Founders Fund led the, the seed, or I'm sorry, they didn't lead the seed, they participated in the seed. And so my path into the fellowship was a little bit different. I basically got a text from one of the partners at Founders Fund. Hey, you should check this out. Let me connect you with the folks over there. Typically, it's an application process where you apply and then your application gets reviewed and sort of go from that perspective. So I was a little bit different that the company was pretty far along. We're about 30-ish people and, and sort of off to the races. But I would say that the the biggest impact that it had aside from the personal dynamic was really just the level of ambition because you're with these people who have goals that are just as high as yours if not higher and you also are able to see folks who are a few years older than you and just at a completely different stage right you're stoked you raised your series a and they're working with bankers on their ipo and so that dynamic is really critical. I think Paul Graham actually has a quote around the importance of being with ambitious people and how if you're an ambitious person and you're not surrounded with other ambitious people, that ambition will die. And so it's something that you have to identify in yourself and really seek it out. I love it. All right. So you've been starting companies since you were 13, skip college. You fit the mold of a tech founder. So my question is, and then we're going to start getting into Wander. What are you good at? I mean, like if, if you had to describe yourself now, what, what is your skill set? It's tough because 
I hate talking about myself, especially in the context of things that I'm good at. And I, th I think that that's really because I constantly question everything. I constantly say, John Andrew, you're not shit. So go work harder, learn more, be better. So you're kind of, you're putting me on the spot here because it's a, it's a framework I haven't thought about in a while. I can say the things that I enjoy doing. Really, I think that I enjoy working with people. People are really everything in a company. People are your customers, people are your employees, the product that you create. And so I love finding these highly ambitious, incredibly talented individuals that for some reason society sort of glosses over. And I feel like I'm pretty good at finding those and creating a culture where they can thrive. I think that the idea of culture is also something that I spend a lot of time on. A lot of companies and people think that good employees are just good employees. It's actually really not the case. A lot of times people work best in certain environments in the same way a tree can thrive in the rainforest, but you go and stick it in Arizona and it's just going to die. And so that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people screw up when they're sort of recruiting talent as they go and look at a bunch of different companies and say, hey, this person seems really talented. I want to bring them over here. When in reality, one of the big reasons why they're so talented is that specific company culture and that specific environment. So I would say that people creating that culture is something that's really important to me. And then I love thinking about the future and thinking about a product and an ecosystem and a strategy that comes together in this beautiful idea. I think humans are one of the only creatures that can see the future. We just don't spend enough time looking towards it. And so that would be the, the one other thing that I would say I truly love is strategizing and, and building products for the future. I said the same thing not too long ago, and I think it's inherent, but like I am nobody's harder on me than me. And my whole life, every single day I've woken up feeling like I have something that I need to get better at or, or improve, which is on one end has led to a lot of great things. It can also be exhausting Absolutely. because there is no finish line when you look at life that way. Yeah, it really is tough. I recently got into chess and the ceiling on chess is obviously so high and I'm, I'm pretty bad. I mean, I'm not terrible, but I'm pretty bad. <laughs> and you go and you look at, I can't help it. I go and look at Magnus Carlsen, the best in the world. And I'm like, okay, like, what do I have to do to like get there? And then you realize that it's hundreds of thousands of hours and constant study. And you have to make a choice of like, okay, do I want to be good at chess or do I want to like actually get some good work done today? So yeah, it's, it is a, it is also a curse. And it's really the same for me with everything, you know, go out, play golf one round. And then all of a sudden you become like, Hey, I want to be the best or <laughs> whatever it may be. So golf's good at completely breaking me down 24 seven. Every time I've shot a great round, I'm like, man, I should have done this for a living. And then on the next day I go blow it. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm right where I need to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's something you have to get good at is making a choice of what you want to be good at. Because if you believe that through hard work, you can be good at anything, you have to focus, you have to pick that one thing and then be willing to accept that you're not going to be great at everything else. And that for people like us is can be a little bit painful. So, all right. Well, you've chosen to focus on a cool idea. You could have probably done anything in the world that you wanted to do. 
and you chose to start Wander. So let's kind of move into that. What is Wander and what what is your what are you looking at in the future when you think of this business? Yeah, so taking us back to the the origin story of the company. So after I stepped down from Coder, I rented that cabin out in Colorado. And the place just didn't really look like the photos. Beds were uncomfortable, internet was bad. And I think that's a vacation rental experience that most consumers have had. And so at the time, I was thinking about this idea of verticalization, sort of the importance of building a platform. And when I had this experience, I sort of mentally broke down the different pieces of the vacation rental industry. Up top, you have your marketplaces, Airbnb, VRBO. Underneath that, you have your property managers. So that could be Vacasa, Evolve, or a local company. And then underneath that, you have your asset manager, which in the case of vacation rentals today is really just your homeowners. And so while you have all these parties that are all working together to deliver this experience to a consumer, but the problem is, of course, is if you have three parties trying to all work together, it typically doesn't work out too well, especially in a logistically complex business. And so the idea for Wander was, or the thesis behind it, sort of the way I like to frame it, was what if you could vertically integrate those components? What if you could build the booking platform, the property management, and the underlying asset management, have all three components talk to each other and create this radically better experience? Sort of how Apple owns the hardware and the software, or Tesla owns the hardware, the software, the distribution, the network, all those different pieces. And so that was a really big idea with Wander. So we started the company in May 2021. And got to work, you know, purchased our first few houses and built the booking platform and the property management software and all these different pieces to really prove this idea of could it be done and would it be better? And it turned out that it was something that customers were really jazzed about, which makes sense. I think people want to go and book a dope house that like is great. I think, you know, the customer experience makes sense. But the business model also has to make sense, obviously. And so you have this dynamic of, you know, can you create scalable positive unit economics? Can you actually efficiently go and put together a vehicle for the underlying asset management? All these different pieces. And so it's a really complex idea, especially for such an early stage company. But, you know, over the last two years, we haven't slept much. And it's finally starting to like really work, which is obviously exciting. So if you had to say of the three components, you said, there's the marketplace, the property manager, the asset manager. Of those three, was there one that was like worse than all the rest or did they all kind of three suck together? <laughs> <laughs> so the the booking platform, I would say, was probably the easiest, which I'm sure all of the engineer and product team are like, John Andrew, what are you saying? But I would say that it's something that is I understand particularly well is what experience feels great from a digital perspective. How can you build this ecosystem? How can you build up the distribution and the brand around the product? Then the next piece is, I would say the property management was a little bit of a pain in the ass. And it really was because there currently are no good models for scalable property management. Basically, most people have taken the approach of a headcount heavy model, which in my opinion, simply doesn't work. You want to have most of your turnover costs or most of your costs generally tied to turnover, right? Someone books a property and then there's costs associated with that rather than having a bunch of W2, which you pay regardless of what's happening. 
And so we had to build out a lot of automation and systems and processes to basically have it so that, you know, we could automate 90% of property management. And in the process, we ended up creating a lot of enterprise value and a pretty wonderful property management software, which at some point maybe we'll, we'll release, which I'm excited for. But that was, that was a lot of work. And we sort of knew that going in. And in the early days of the company, I mean, I was out there like plunging toilets and putting in fixtures and like understanding how that part of the business worked. And if, again, you could automate it and if you could have these efficiencies where the platform and the property management software are talking to one another. So it's saying, hey, this guest would like to check in early. Like, Did the cleaner submit their photos? Yes, yes, yes. You know, did the landscapers get triggered, et cetera, property inspector. And basically what you have is orchestration of a bunch of third-party contractors. And so that was really the first part of the business that we launched with was the booking platform, the property management, and then the homes we really just launched with a few on balance sheet. When it came time to setting up the asset management, I decided that we were going to launch a REIT, which... I'm sure that you've you've looked up into and are very familiar with, and it is a ridiculous amount of work. I mean, <laughs> holy shit, like thousands of pages of documents and models and working with Ian Wise REIT team on their REIT opinion is just so intense. Plus, obviously, audited financials as well and all these different pieces. And of course, no one's done it for short-term rentals before. So you have to go through this process of, drawing parallels and understanding, you know, can this be done? How will it be done? And so that was a ridiculous amount of work. And then adding on top of that, building a product that allows for the onboarding of investors is even more work. You're looking at, you know, KYC and AML, you're looking at accreditation verification through third-party integration. You're looking at integration with a third-party fund administrator in terms of funds, tracking, and then distributions, dividends, all these different pieces. It was a ridiculous amount of work. It's been like the last six months of craziness. I think these bags under my eyes are permanent from that. <laughs> so Those I would say... Bags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I would say that that was probably the hardest was putting together the re and it still is difficult, right? I mean, we're going through this phase of launching V2 of the flow because we have a bunch of people who want to invest, but right now it's such a step-by-step process just because there's so many regulatory controls. And so we're really optimizing that dynamic now and gosh, it's, it's a cool feeling. It's awesome. Like someone wants to go and invest as you know, you're well aware, but it's like, okay, like how can we help them do so faster and easier and really automate this process? And the next phase of wonder is probably the one I'm most excited for is integrating that ownership dynamic directly into the actual experience. So having it be right through the wonder app, you can go and invest and then it says, okay, would you like access to Christmas at Tahoe, for example? Really like blurring those lines between customer and owner without sort of this like predatory timeshare dynamic. Like it's a real financial product that like really earns dividends and really will grow in appreciation. But it also comes with certain perks inside the ecosystem. And I think that's where things get, in my opinion, really like trippy from a user experience. And so I'm excited to test that thesis. 
on the on the REIT side, and I look forward to diving into some of these. On the REIT side, you're you're raising equity. Are you able to capitalize any of this with debt? Is there are there lenders out there that are lending on short term rentals, or is it still kind of the wild west? We closed the first, if not maybe like one of the first short-term rental facilities. So we closed a $100 million facility with Credit Suisse slash Apollo, now UBS. So thankfully that facility is still up and running and with Apollo and, you know, great, great, to, great to be unscathed through that transaction. But yeah, that was also, as you'd imagine, a lot of work, right? Putting together those types of facilities and obviously the, the scrutiny that you get going through that with a large international bank is... Is pretty intense. So put together that facility, it sort of mirrors a lot of the dynamics of the single family rental market, which is really what allows for this business model to start to be institutionalized is that institutional players can look at it and say, okay, what are the parallels to the single family rental market? And then how can we apply that to the short term rental market? So we have that facility, obviously. And then eventually we'll go and put some leverage actually inside of the REIT. If I had to guess, it'll end up being from some insurance company or otherwise, probably 50, 60% leverage, pretty, pretty typical. But yeah, it's certainly starting to see some institutional interest, both on the lending side. But now I think what's most interesting is the institutional investor side is really starting to look at this category very very seriously. I think that's also driven largely from the current rate environment and how you need a product that's able to generate a, a much higher yield in order to be able to deploy capital into the asset category of single family homes. And so short term rentals are are starting to be attractive from that perspective. But obviously, it's a hospitality business as well. And so you need to deploy with a really good operator. You can't just go and buy 500 you know, cookie cutter homes in Phoenix and expect for them to perform well over the next five years. That's just probably not going to not going to happen. So I don't know if you can share, but like, what is the what is a great yield on a really well performing short term rental? I would say like 15 percent, typically 15, 20 percent if you're like performing really well, but 15 percent sort of where you end up. And then obviously you have all types of other costs and otherwise associated with that. But yeah, I would say about 15% is sort of a, a good target. I'm going to get into the service side, the vendor, the, the management side in a second. What makes a great home for Wander? Like what do y'all, what's your checklist of like, this is an absolute no, or this is a yes. Cause I've been on the site and these are incredible places, but they seem like they're super unique and they're in these awesome places. A lot of them are remote. So how are you finding these and like what makes a great property for Wander? Yeah, so you have two dynamics. The first is what do consumers want, which is really critical, especially when you're thinking about who's actually renting these properties. And then the other dynamic is obviously your, your underwriting process. Is this property going to yield and how confident are you in that data? So we really look at it from those those two perspectives, which creates a little bit of pull in either direction, which is is always good. It's always good to have a little bit of friction and have as many guardrails as possible in your acquisition process. So 
The first thing that we do is basically analyze these massive troves of existing short-term rental data. So we've gotten these massive data dumps from all these different providers along with our own data and basically analyze things like occupancy, seasonality, rental rates, existing comps, all that sort of fun stuff down to the actual property addresses. So that creates a heat map of all the areas we want to be focused on across the United States and, and actually globally. We're not global yet, but when we get there, we're very, very excited for it. And so... We start there, and then once we've identified key target markets, what makes sense, we also, of course, know where our users are. So we kind of have that advantage to say where are folks interested in and where can we drive demand. That's the other really important dynamic with Wander is because we own our users, we're able to say, hey, you may have never heard of St. George Island, Florida, but trust us, it's incredible, you should go there. Versus existing marketplaces are dependent on are people searching for Nashville or whatever it may be? So once we find a market that we're excited about, we have a few different alerting systems, both for on-market and off-market opportunities, basically scraping those. And then the acquisition team will go out and, and find a property that, that makes sense. Interestingly, that, that acquisition team sits inside of finance, which is a really important decision from from our perspective is that a lot of companies have that team sit outside, but you really want the finance team making the decisions in terms of what assets you're buying at the end of the day. So that's why we have them sit there. From there, the property basically has to pass through the guest experience side of things. Is this property something that we think that people will really love? Is the neighborhood safe? Is it an asset that we want to own for the next 10, 20 years. And typically we focus on areas that are supply constrained. You know, when you launch into a market where there's a lot of competition, it's typically problematic in terms of overall yield compression over, you know, X period of time. And the other dynamic is we really want to have places that are truly unique. This idea that God isn't making any more oceanfront or any more beachfront is something that's super important to us. From there, it goes basically through this pretty intense underwriting process and then through investment committee, obviously physical inspections, appraisals, all that sort of fun stuff. I think our, our appraisals actually have appraisals on the appraisals, desk, you know, the desktop reviews. And so it's, it's, it's the same institutional process that exists for single family rental, probably much more intense because we're the ones who are on the hook as the operator if the property doesn't perform. And so we want to make sure that it's something that our customers love. And then the property gets onboarded and off to the races. And that process typically results in, to your point, really incredible properties, which is, is, is cool to see. So, Okay, let's talk about service because I think this is where it gets real competitive, or at least that's what everybody's... I think I, I had somebody on, they kind of said, we're in short-term rental 3.0 now. It's no longer... Like it keeps evolving closer to being a resort-like experience. But I think one thing y'all have figured out is how you outfit these and how you create the experience and the amenities. So let's maybe start with how are these homes outfitted that would make them stand out against maybe competition? Like what are you doing to the homes that make them something that people want to be at and love? Absolutely. So a great way for the listener to think about it is trying to draw parallels to their favorite hotel chains, Four Seasons or Amon or Ritz-Carlton. And each one has their own flair and standardizations and this dynamic. 
that idea of quality and consistency and brand in the short-term rental space simply hasn't existed really up until now. And that's one of the pieces that we're so excited about is this idea of creating a brand around the experience of the short-term rental so that you know when you go to a wander, there's going to be Giardelli chocolate on the bedside table and those different dynamics. In terms of the guest experience, we also focus on things that we know we can do that no operator can. And that really comes from the dynamic of owning the hardware and the software. So when you book a wander and you arrive at the property, you'll notice that the music is playing, the lights are turned on, and that's because we know that you're about to check in. And you can unlock the app right through your phone, turn on and off the lights, turn on the fire pit, all those really cool dynamics. You'll also notice there's a Tesla in the garage, which you can go through that whole insurance process again, right through the Wander app, and then text concierge to go and book a private chef or certain restaurant recommendations in the area. And so you start to, as a user, really experience the benefits of the fact that Wander owns the booking platform and the actual experience because those dynamics just aren't possible. Maybe you could print out a guest guide and have an iPad on the wall or otherwise, but that idea of fluidity is something that's not going to be there. And then having that level of consistency across the entire portfolio is really what makes it magical is this idea of, hey, let's go to Wander Vale Valley this summer. And then maybe in the winter, let's go skiing in Tahoe and knowing that it's going to be the same type of experience and we're going to know your preferences or otherwise is is something that's really critical. And then, of course, we have our partners from a you know furniture and linen perspective otherwise. So if you like the the beds and the sheets at One Wander, then you'll like them at all the wanders. And there's just a little bit of comfort knowing that everything's sort of made for you. Do, and, and just to confirm, y'all own everything that you're that you are renting out or are you sometimes renting and then re-renting? No, there's no rental arbitrage. Okay. Wander is is the owner. Okay. So the, on the technology side, so we're, everything can be booked through the app. You guys control the experience. How do things work with vendors? So I think this is where a lot of the questions start coming in is one, you have to have scale, but two, the cost of turnover, especially in remote areas where you know, maybe re- vendors are more scarce or they're more expensive or they're traveling far. Like, what are some things you've done to automate, like how these places get service with the vendors in the area that that make it profitable? Yeah. So really the, the team that you put together in terms of your local contractors is is hypercritical. The cleaning crews, landscapers, all that that dynamic. And what's really interesting is because Wander is the property owner, you don't have this dynamic that a lot of property managers have where you're trying to coordinate certain costs or improvements with the actual homeowner. For example, let's say, I don't know, the driveway gets washed out, right? A, a property manager is going to have to go to the homeowner and say, hey, the driveway got you know washed out. Here's what it's going to cost to fix this XYZ versus Wander's is that we're the same entity. And so we're able to pretty quickly assess and get bids and then approve the project. And so that dynamic from an efficiency perspective is really beautiful. 
you know, where most property managers are effectively dealing with this, this third party, we are, are just a connected entity. So that's, that's something that's pretty critical. In terms of turnover costs, it's something that you're always optimizing. You're always looking, obviously, to improve your NOI. For Wander, we're fortunate that we're operating in the sort of higher end of the market. And so we're able to pay cleaners and otherwise a little bit more than I think a lower end short term rental could could get away with. And we're also, of course, making sure that that experience is something that's really consistent and high quality and hotel grade and in every respect. And what we see from that is from guests that we're able to drive a higher occupancy, higher ADR, which really offsets it. So we're starting to now see the real benefits of this wander platform effectively and and basically driving out performance relative to the rest of the short term market. And do you have to be a member of wander or can I just if I'm can I just go book one right now without having to you sign? can totally go book one right now. Maybe you should, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. you should. Maybe I should. But if I am a member, what do I get as a member? So anyone who signs up is basically a wander member. And by doing so, you actually get a bunch of perks that we don't really market. So all of our vendors, we get these pretty hefty discounts. And obviously, we can't pass all of these discounts to them, but we can we can pass basically a discount light to our users. So companies like Herman Miller, you can get 15% off, Lazoni, all these different brands that we work with. I think probably one of my favorites, I don't know if you can see in the background, that suitcase, the silver one, it is a work of art. It is the most beautiful suitcase ever. And you get 25% off a Sterling Pacific. So it is like a lot of really cool perks just by downloading the app and being a part of it. And of course, the idea there is over time as Wander grows as a company, we really want to be the central travel app for users. This idea of I went, I booked flights, I'm a Wander member, so I was able to get into this this airline club or whatever it may be and then you know have you know my rental car waiting for me all these like really cool things right through the wander app so that's that's where the company will go over the next 10 years as we really want to turn into this massive travel behemoth but today obviously it's sort of one step at a time I want to, we'll talk about the future in a second, but real quick during the experience. So I, I booked something, I'm going to rent it for X amount a night do, as like a hotel. Do y'all offer upsells while I'm there? Are there other things I can buy while I'm there? So we don't offer upsells, which maybe we should, but we don't. Everything's just included. The drinks, the snacks, all that sort of fun stuff is is all included in the price, including the Tesla. Tesla is just part of the price. You can use it or not, whatever you want to do. I think that the tricky thing is, is that people, you don't want to be nickel and dimed when you get to, you know, your destination. I think people have gotten used to it, but we get used to a lot of bad things. And so I'd much rather our, our customers get used to good things like, instant customer support and resolution and everything being included so that when they go to a competitor and it's not, they're not used to it not being included. So there's no no upsells, everything's included. And we sort of just model that all into our turnover costs and into our overall pricing. Yeah. If you're a hotel owner and you're listening to this and you charge people extra for Wi-Fi, you do not get it. 
I don't even I don't care. I have to pay for it included in the price. Raise my price of the hotel room, but do not make me log in after booking a five hundred dollar room night. And then you're going to charge me twenty nine ninety nine for premium Wi-Fi on top of that. I, I cannot get why they still do that. <laughs> it is it is low hanging fruit. And that's my Absolutely. TED talk on hotels right there. I think you're going to I think that TED talk is going to change the industry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you you were. You were talking about 10 years from now. What about the trap? What about like, as you've now been in this for two years, you probably have had your mind evolve and change even from when you started in 2021 to everything you've learned to date. What needs to go away in this industry? Like what won't be here 10 years from now? What is is dying a slow death and they just don't know it right now? So when I was a kid in our town, we had five or six restaurants. And four of them were terrible. Just really bad, bad service, bad food, just terrible. But you would never know because you would call 411 and make a reservation or whatever. And this idea of online reviews and curation and just wasn't really there, right? But over the last 10 or so, 20 or so years, Thinking back, I was probably pretty young when my pop was dialing 411, but I still remember it. And that dynamic is coming to travel and it's coming in a big way. This idea that people are falling victim to underwhelming properties, underwhelming hotels, underwhelming travel like airlines or otherwise is is very quickly disappearing as consumers have visualization into quality. I think what's going to happen next is this idea that curation is is really going to become the next big thing. I've always sort of talked about this idea of I want to I want a travel app where I can say hey, I need to go from Austin to New York and click one button and book my trip and not have to worry about picking seats or what hotel, because the app just knows, hey, a middle seat at the back of the airplane next to the bathroom is just not good. Like that's just not a good seat and you shouldn't sit it. And so like we know, we also know that 5 a.m. flight is terrible. So let's put you on a 10 a.m. one. And oh, if there isn't a 10 a.m. one, then you know, does it make sense for you to fly the day prior and just stay the night and you know do your meeting in the morning? So there are all these different dynamics when it comes to travel. And I think a lot of that was solved with this idea of the travel agent, right? That's where the curation and making sure that everything was put together really came from. And so I think over the next 10 years, what we're going to see is really the elimination of low quality operators, just period. I just don't think they're going to be able to survive. I think I think they're, they're going to be those who attempt to obviously catfish and, you know, trick travelers and otherwise. But I think that's going to suffer pretty dramatically. And then I think there's going to be this whole wave of curation when it comes to how users travel. And I know it can sound a little bit buzzwordy, but I do think that AI is going to play a really big piece of that. Basically taking a user prompt and turning that into a trip while understanding what are the user's preferences from a accommodation perspective and otherwise. So I think that's really what it's going to look like in 10 years. I think travel is going to feel effortless. It's literally going to be one click and the whole thing is a surprise and the app just sort of guides you on your way. 
like if we had done this podcast in 2021, I would guess this is me just guessing. And then maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. That my question is, are most of the people booking your stuff? Are they on vacation? Or are they on a long term two month sabbatical because they can work from home? My so where my guess is, is like in 2021, it was a lot of people just, you know, bumping around the country working from everywhere. And maybe that's shifted now that we're in 2023 and things are somewhat back to normal. What is your average stay? Who Who is the customer profile? Like, how are they using the properties? Yeah, so our, our average stay is 3.7 days. And the way people use it is sort of all over the place, which to your point is sort of what you would start to expect, right? Vacation nowadays means something very different than it did, let's say, in like the 1950s, right? Where you would go and you'd say to your boss, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take three, four days off. And that's it. Because if you're not at the office, you're not working. There's no phone. There's no anything. You're just gone. Versus today, there really is no such thing as being completely disconnected. And so what we see a lot of is people who go on these trips and they still have to answer an email or hop on a Zoom or otherwise. And maybe the other 80% of the time they're relaxing or on the flip side of that, it could be a business owner who's just had a ridiculously stressful quarter and needs to work on their goals and wants to do so while looking at the ocean, which of course there's nothing wrong with that either. So our, our use cases are really all over the place from families and couples to business owners to teams. And our goal is really to create an environment that works for those users. So that's why we make sure that our internet is good, because whether you're watching Netflix or doing a Zoom, it's super important. It's also free. So and then, yeah, there's just, you know, making sure that people can enjoy themselves again, whether it's relaxing or working or whatever it may be. And so the mix is is pretty all over the place, but I think it's just representative reality, which, you know, reality is messy in terms of how people live and work and wander is is basically just there to to let people enjoy themselves in whatever whatever way that looks like. Do you think there's a room in your market for what you're doing for these big 16 bedroom houses that are almost like little hotels? Or are you going to stay more boutique kind of family style houses that are more for smaller groups? The larger houses can be challenging. This is where you kind of go back to the flip side of the house not only needs to satisfy what guests want, but also what finance wants as well. And so those 16 bedroom houses, if they're not like in the middle of absolutely nowhere, are typically pretty expensive. And the market for 16 person groups, if you are a 16 person group, you're like, this is a huge market. Like, why can't I like find a place? But on the operator side, it's actually much smaller. And you also have to look at it from a competitive point of view. So why would a 16-person group go and rent this you know, $15 million house when, like, hey, there are literally thousands of hotels that are able to accommodate and have restaurants and all these different dynamics, which I think are sort of better, better suited. You know, maybe at some point... And to be clear, there are no plans for this, but maybe when Wander is a few billion dollar company, you know, knock on wood, if I can find some, like it would be really cool to go and buy a hotel 
right? Like there are a lot of cool spaces and urban environments and you could imagine a wander hotel and like, wow, like how cool would that be? But yeah, the, the larger houses for now, I think our largest one is eight bedrooms, which is, I feel already pretty massive. So going beyond that isn't, isn't planned, but never say never. If I had to guess more likely, we go and buy a few houses that are next to each other. And so they can be rented independently or together. But again, it all gets a little bit more complicated because then you get into concentration and otherwise, which can affect portfolio performance. So there's a whole bunch of dynamics at play when it comes to composition. Do you ever worry about zoning or like STR regulations by these local municipalities? That's one of the challenging things. It's just like in any real estate is like they don't all have the same rules. It's different everywhere. And you hear some cities that are saying, you know, no more Airbnbs or whatever. How do you kind of get around that or think about that? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we focus on more like remote and vacation destinations, because if a locale of if, if, if a local economy is dependent on tourism then typically they're pretty friendly to anything that drives tourism and so that's why we really focus on those sort of areas the other thing that i would say too is that again like any type of regular like regulator you need to work with them because like their goal is very specific in a lot of circumstances they're trying to avoid housing shortages or otherwise which in wander's case isn't really applicable because we're buying these multi-million dollar vacation homes and so it's not like your average family isn't gonna like be able to go and live there it's just not where we play so they're really trying to solve for landlords taking long-term leases and saying hey let's let's go make this a short-term rental instead which can be really bad for the local economy and so navigating that is something that's really interesting if i had to guess in the future i think that there are going to be regulations that are passed in a lot of these places that sort of carve out this idea of almost like a like independent hotel style where hey if the property is over two million dollars and it's a professional operator, then it sort of falls into a different bucket than, again, you know, multifamily or otherwise. So, but for us, we just play by the rules and work with the regulators and all of our properties are permitted and happy and we pay the, you know, local taxes and obviously bring a lot of, lot of great folks into the economy. And I think that's probably one of the things that I'm like happiest about is that like we make a real positive impact in terms of just like the village of people who like are supported from what we're doing, you know, sending, sending our guests to these incredible local restaurants and ice cream parlors and, you know, being able to support the local plumber and landscaper and cleaning crews is all something that's really important to us. And then again, we're, we're also the owner. And so like we we truly deeply care about these communities because we have a literal vested interest in making sure that they're successful and flourish and we have a great relationship with all of our neighbors and like it, it sort of brings a soul back to it when again you're the actual underlying property owner and that's something that's really important and yeah i love i love the idea that we have these meaningful relationships with these 
these truly incredible communities and American towns. And we were talking about it, obviously, before the podcast started. Like, it just makes me love this country, getting to meet all these incredible people and all these local small towns. It's like you really, you really do appreciate just how amazing and diverse this place that we live is. Yeah, we have a pretty good in America, don't we? Absolutely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. You mentioned concentration risks. Like, are there could there be too many wanders in a in an area, or is it is it? Do you, I'm sure you guys have data on how many you could have in any one location, or have you kind of figured out what that ceiling is? Yeah. So, so a good way to think about it, like any portfolio, is around diversification. And so, what you want to do is you basically want to have diversity in terms of size of places, but then also in terms of locations, so that. God forbid there's a fire in a certain place that it's not taking out 20% of the portfolio, right? And so from our perspective, what we want to do is have diversification in terms of size, location, but then also amenity sets as well. Beachfront versus ski in, ski out, those different dynamics, winter versus summer to even out occupancy. And that's really what allows for the product to actually be investable and lendable. So, for example, if all of our homes were just in Joshua Tree, there's no way that we would have been able to secure the facility that we did because it's just way too high risk from a lending perspective. And even from an investing perspective with the REIT, the idea that effectively you're buying this index of the highest performing short-term rentals across the United States. And it has that diversification is really important versus even if you're a solo operator and you go and buy a house and like the pipes freeze and it's flooded, like that year's income is like screwed, right? You have to do a bunch of repairs and all that sort of stuff. Versus if you are able to invest in a portfolio that's diversified, even if that happens to one of the homes, you know, you're not taking the same hit or risk. So diversification is something that's super important. I'm sort of a like Ray Dalio nerd when it comes to this idea of like the holy grail of diversification. And if we're going to offer a singular financial product in the vacation rental space, I want to make sure that that product itself is as diversified as really makes sense. You're going to build this, you know, again, we'll knock on wood, but um, I think I think you'll get there. But this multi-billion dollar REIT, you're going to have all these properties and then you're going to have this wonderful opco that's managing them in an elegant way that's doing it better than how do I value a business like yours? Is it is it two separate valuations? If you were to sell one day, are you selling it all? And then my and then I'll get into. I don't I, I try not to ask too many questions in one question, but. You said it's good that we own everything, but you're also building world-class property management. And so maybe you might end up doing some third-party management for others. I don't really know. But I'll go back to the first question. Are you guys a REIT that has value there and an opco that has value in all the fees that you generate by managing? Or like, how do I think about you? Yeah. So that's a question we get a lot is... Like what? What even is this business? Because <laughs> it's it's really it's three businesses sort of rolled into one. And I always think back to there was this incredible interview with Jeff Bezos, where he was asked, "Are you an internet company because you own a bunch of warehouses?" Right? 
And his response, I thought, was just so beautiful. He said, I don't care if we're an internet company. The only thing I care about is that we're providing the best experience to our customers, which I thought was a really beautiful idea. Now, I, I do think that he knew that it is an internet company and he just like, that was just a really cool reply. When you think about Wander, really what you want to do is break down the three different components. So you have the booking platform and that that whole dynamic. And so that would draw comparables, let's say, to Airbnb, VRBO, et cetera. Then you have the property management company, which draws your parallels to Vacasa or otherwise. And then you have the asset manager, which you can draw as many parallels as you want to whichever players, Starwood, Blackstone, whatever that looks like. And so when you think about how to value this business, you have a few choices. The first is, is you can value each piece independently and then combine them all. You can say, hey, each piece basically harmoniously interacts with and compounds the effects of the other pieces. So it's, part it's of the worth, flywheel. Exactly. So it's worth slightly more than the sum of its parts, whatever that dynamic looks like. For us, and, and sort of the way that I think about it is it's all about the business model. And so what you want to do is you want to create a business model where you aren't necessarily like set up for failure in a case where, let's say, like an event like COVID happens or otherwise. And so you know, from our perspective, like by, do, by building the business the way that we're building it, we're really taking advantage of the cash flows that come from all these different parties. We're able to provide a much better user experience. We're able to create this really incredible brand on top of it. And at the end of the day, we'll see how the public market values a business like that. I mean, I have, I couldn't tell you, right? I couldn't tell you if they're, it's going to be a, you know, 10 times sales or, you know, well, like I have no idea. But what I can say is, is that we know that the unit economics work and we know that because we own all three pieces, that all of those cash flows are ours. And when you have a high cash flowing business that is effectively entirely asset light with a great consumer brand, you know, it's just, and obviously you're your own customer, which I think from the property management perspective is a pretty important idea that like you aren't going out and trying to recruit op like hosts or otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see, but I think that it really is, you know, you can develop theses on, on all angles of it, but the way that I tend to look at it is break down each component, understand how each interacts with itself. And to your point, the idea of this flywheel that it creates, and then basically you come to some, you know, multiple above like the sum of its parts is sort of, sort of how it's been broken down. You kind of gave the tenure vision, but but your coworker Kyle, we have to take one of his questions from Twitter, and and his question was basically, if if we've been successful, this is where we'll be in five years. How would we answer that? Yeah, you know, it's such an interesting question because you have different levels of success. So, I'll break it down to sort of the ones that are like the baseline requirement. It's really important to me that Wander is a profitable and durable business. As trendy as it is to build like a high-flying, high-growth startup, I think that that is just not the way to scale a business, especially if you truly believe that it can be around for 
20, 30, 100 years. Like you want to build something that's that's truly durable. And profitability should come much sooner than five years out, thankfully. But it is something that's really critical. So that's what I would put first and foremost as like what I'm driving towards from a success perspective is reaching profitability and then ensuring through that process that we continue to deliver something that's great for our consumers and great for our customers. And if we can do both of those things, then we create a lot of value for shareholders, which is also something that's sort of deeply important to me is always making sure that our customers are happy and our shareholders are happy and the team is happy. And even if I kill myself in that process, it's, it's okay at the end of the day. <laughs> from, from there, you Don't get more into... yourself, man. You, we, we need you to... You're going to get a wife one day, kids, yeah, all this great stuff coming. <laughs> so let's make it there. You're going to be a great dad because you've had a great no, dad. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely one of my goals in life. Beyond that, I think really what you're looking at is tens of thousands of properties you know, across the U.S. and internationally. Taking the company global is something that's really important to me because I think that this earth, however it got here, is truly magnificent in every respect. And creating an excuse for people to go and explore it is is something that I think is just good for the world. And so going internationally is really important to me. From there, I would say that you're going to start to see the integration of a lot of the things that I mentioned, things like flights and hotels. At that point, we'll also likely have added curated properties. And so you'll have a true marketplace dynamic starting to take place. So there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that are going to start. I'd say at that point, the REIT is also likely publicly registered. It may not be publicly listed, but it'll be a, a publicly registered entity. And so hopefully it'll it'll be you know, this incredible, like, yeah, just this incredible financial product. And who knows, maybe we'll have a hotel at that point too, just to make us all smile. So I love it. So if you're a travel agent right now, you think this is just an industry that might be dying a slow death that like AI and automation and tech is really going to make it to where people can press a button and have trips, whether it's through Wander or whomever, but it's tough to imagine travel agents 10 years from now. Yeah. So what I would say, if you were a travel agent listening to this, is that you do have value. You have value in understanding what people want in different locations. You have this idea of creating a personal relationship with the traveler, which is something that an AI really could never do. What I would recommend is really thinking about how does the future of the business look? And how can I leverage these different technologies and this idea of curation and support to really create an incredible user experience? And so rather than looking at it through the lens of it's going to like be like doom and destruction and otherwise, I would look at it through the lens of, hey, the, the landscape is changing in the same way that you know couriers bringing letters was changing with the dawn of the internet. And you are at the forefront of this industry. And so you have a choice. You can lean in and adapt and start to learn and play with these tools and understand how they work and you know, maybe even join some of these companies or create your own. Or of course, you can you know, look at the opposite way and, and do nothing. And so I think that that's a choice. And so I'm actually a little bit more optimistic. I'm also like very pro 
like just the human race generally. Like I, I don't want to see the human race like erased by AI. That's not something that like what makes me happy. And so my advice is really understanding that this change is happening. And so leaning into, you know, how you can, how you can build around it and support it and really leverage this idea of human connection in a world where there's just less and less every day. So that'd be what I would say from a travel agent perspective. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the one zinger and then we'll bring it home. And I know they're all your favorite, so you can't use that answer. Where is your favorite wander to stay at? Mm. Well, since you took away answer number one, <laughs> I would say Wander Bandon Beach. Okay. And that's in Bandon, Oregon. So Southern Oregon. Anyone who's a golfer will know it for, Bandon Dunes, of baby. course, Bandon Dunes. It is one of the most remarkable places in America. It, the town along the ocean, the beaches, the golf course, the hiking trails, it, it it's like God spent a little extra time on it. It is just so incredible. And I recently, I've just gotten into golf. Well, I can't say I've just gotten into it. I've been playing golf for a while, but I'm still bad. So I, I like to just keep saying that I'm, I'm just getting into it as an excuse. And I recently got a new set of clubs that I'm super jazzed on. I got this wood putter from Ember, Ember Putters, which I highly, highly recommend. And I am so excited because I know for a fact that I'm going to go book. I'm probably going to book some bad dates because I don't want to take up occupancy for other people. But I'm going to go book some time later this year. And I'm sure it'll be raining the time of year that I go. But I'll be there with my wood putter looking at the ocean, like drenched. And I'll be just, it'll be my happy place. I'll just be so stoked. And of course, I'll probably be there with my pop. And, you know, it'll, it'll be a great time. So I would say Bandon. And for those of you who are wondering, that was our our second property. And I remember standing in that home and saying, if if we can duplicate this feeling and we can really build a portfolio like this and we can deliver an experience like this to thousands and thousands of people, then we can build an important company. So if anyone ever goes to that that property, you'll be able to stand where I stood and and I think you'll be able to see what I saw. So when you book, tell them the Fort podcast for $0 off of your stay. (laughs) (laughs) For free Wi-Fi. For free Wi-Fi. Free Wi-Fi. John, this was awesome, man. I'm pumped for what you're building. I'm rooting for you. And I'm going to do my best to try and stay in a wander sometime soon. I look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an incredible conversation. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.